This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Happy Father's Day. Hope you carved out some time to toss the ball around in the backyard with your young'uns. And I hope you enjoyed your spray-painted macaroni art and your, your paper necktie. <laughs> uh, God bless them. Welcome. To the Audio Imaginarium, you have arrived. This is The Conspiracy Show, and I am Richard Serrett. Great show for you this evening. A poignant hour of programming coming your way. First, a quick update on my colleague here at Zoomer Radio, our flagship station, AM740, my colleague George Genescu, who received an energy healing here on the show last week. George, of course, uh, was told some uh, weeks ago that he had stomach cancer, and uh, immediately notified Douglas James Cottrell, a medical intuitive uh, energy healer, a good friend of that program. And uh, Douglas Cottrell was in Spain at the time, and he sent out some healing intentions remotely while on tour in Spain. Of course, within days, George's abdominal pain stopped after three and a half months of being in constant pain. And George is convinced it was a miracle. Last week, Douglas Cottrell was here in studio and performed a laying on of hands on George in person. Now, uh, this happened off the air in an adjacent studio, but but George practically toppled over once uh, Douglas laid his hands on him. And, uh, uh, you know, now that the, the, the abdominal pains have subsided, Douglas had asked George, you know, what else can I do for you? And George mentioned that he suffers from vertigo which apparently is very common uh, among uh, people George's age. George is uh, uh, an octogenarian, and uh, he takes pills daily for this vertigo. So he mentioned that this is something that, it, that, that this is an issue that he's having, so that was what Douglas was concentrating on. And uh, George explained on the air that he felt that heat and energy in his, in his head and uh, came into the studio Tonight, George Janescu informed me uh, that for a, sort of as a trial, he was going to stop taking his vertigo medication. Well, he's been off it for seven days. No more vertigo. 
All right, I'm just going to throw that out there as the evidence continues to mount uh, and let you uh, sort of sort through that and do with it which you, what you will. So no more vertigo for George Ginescu. Uh, to be continued. Over a decade after the U.S. and U.K. invaded Iraq in 2003, the military allies have created a joint counter-terrorist team to send to the country. British officers are already on their way to prepare for possible airstrikes, according to the Sunday Times. The Special Air Service of the British Army officers were on their way to Iraq this weekend to prepare the ground for possible airstrikes. Senior defense sources confirmed that military personnel were part of a joint British and American counter-terrorist team ordered in on Friday by William Haig, the Foreign Secretary, and John Kerry, the U.S. Secretary of State. The team is understood to include MI6 operatives as well as high-ranking Special Forces officers, the Sunday Times is reporting. The mission might be a result of options considered by U.S. President Barack Obama, which he announced in an earlier statement. Airstrikes and the use of drones were among the range of possible military options, and the paper confirmed that, saying that SAS, again, that's the Special Air Service of the British Army, the SAS task will be to identify possible targets before Obama decides whether to commit American air power. According to military experts, such special forces teams can target missiles at objects using special lasers, increasing the accuracy of airstrikes. They can also establish the degree of destruction during certain military operations. Now, here's where it gets interesting. With the current crisis in Iraq, the U.S. may find itself in a position where it will act on one side with Iran. You heard that correctly. The U.S. may find itself in a position where it will act on one side with Iran to prevent further military gains by what they're calling a too-extreme-for-Al-Qaeda jihadist group. The Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, has said that Tehran may consider cooperating with Washington to battle the extremist threat. So now, let's see if we can follow this program. The United States, which is supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria to overthrow the regime of Bashir al-Assad, which is an ally of Iran, is now preparing to ally with Iran to fight jihadists that are too extreme for al-Qaeda in Iraq. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure out what the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War were all about. What happened between George Herbert Walker Bush and his former business partner, Saddam Hussein? How did that go sour? We'll never know. Why? Anyway, if you're finding it progressively more and more difficult to separate the white hats from the black hats, the good guys from the bad, you're not alone. It's been 24 years since the first Gulf War, and I'm still not sure, I don't think any of us are, what that was all about. But this is the way of the world, of, uh, the, the way of the world these days, isn't it? Up is down. Down is up. White is black. But at least my Blue Jays are struggling again in June, so at least there's something in the world that makes sense. Oh, dear. Uh, we, say, we, we have, as I say, a particularly poignant hour of radio coming your way. It's the story of one woman's remarkable courage growing up in Nazi Germany and surviving the Holocaust. Uh, we're about to hear uh, what she endured and how she survived. But here's also where it gets very interesting. We're also going to learn and, and, and have illustrated for us some of the stark 
parallels between the early days of Hitler's Germany and the United States 70 years later. Holocaust survivor Anita Dittman's story is told in a new book entitled Trapped in Hitler's Hell, and it's also a documentary available on DVD. She did, as I say, live through Hitler's rise to power, dictatorship, and death. And she's warning America that she sees now the same conditions she saw then. Anita Dittman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm just fine, thank you. And uh, uh, now, excuse me. Yes, is Jan Markell on the same line and two tonight. Uh, no, your co-author is not. It's just you, Anita. Just you oh, and I. Okay. Is that okay? Well, I was hoping. Jan, I hoping. I was hoping Jan is there because she's the one that wrote the book. Well, um, I gave her all the details in 1977, and uh, orally and in written form, and then she went from there, and she's done a remarkable job. Yes, and she, I'm forever grateful. For she it. certainly did. And but this is your story, so we're delight, oh, delighted. Delighted yeah, to have you with story. us, Anita. Uh, uh, Anita, uh, uh, now listen. Obviously, we want to talk about uh, you know what you lived through, how you endured it, how you survived. But I also want to get around to this warning that you're giving us, mm-hmm. uh, that you're seeing a return to those days. Of You're seeing some, some eerie similarities between the early days of, of Hitler's Germany, the rise of the Nazis in Germany, and what's going on today. And some might say, whoa, that's, that's uh, you know, pretty outlandish. But again, we have to consider the source here. You're someone who lived through Hitler's hell, and now you're seeing perhaps his, a history repeating itself. But, but take us back, An- Anita, uh, 1933, and um, Hitler's rise to power. Where, what was life like before Hitler for you okay. in Germany? Yeah. Well, my, we were comfortably wealthy. My father had a very prestigious job in Breslau, Germany, which is oh, located somewhat close to Poland, but still in in East Germany. And uh, we lived in a nice little suburb, and my sister and I had everything our hearts desired, and uh, except Christian nurture. There was none of that. My father was an atheist, and my mother had uh, kind of renounced her Jewish faith and joined the ranks of the intellectuals of her times and uh, was interested in an Eastern religion. So, and yet, we, my sister and I didn't know what we were missing. I was about, <clears throat> I was a young little kid, and my sister was about four and a half years older. But anyway, to make a long story short, God gave me a wonderful gift, among others, and that was of dancing. So my mother enrolled me in a ballet school, and I have to talk about that because it's amazing how the Lord worked his wondrous ways. He, um, uh, I had the uh, opportunity when I was about, well, I, I started at age four and about age six, I had a chance to finally dance with the big girls. And when the, um, and Hitler had already come to power. So the scene of my life began to change somewhat. I know the dance was superbly performed by Anita Dittmann, so the uh, review said in the paper the next day after the dance, recitals and but they said the um, German uh, people are no longer be willing to be entertained by a Jew 
And in addition, because my father then, when I was that age, had left us, didn't want to be married to a Jewish woman, and that really threw us into the arms of our persecutors. There was no protection. Because some of the people that stayed married, the Aryan part was a certain protection for the Jewish part. Well, to make a long story short, I was very grieved, and I cried a lot, and my mother said, Anita, you're going to have to quit crying. It's not going to get any better. Try to be strong and look around you and see where people are worse off, and there were some already, because we already had concentration camps. Somehow, my teacher, before this happened, she had promised me, you know, that I'd have a great life. She would help me to become a prima ballerina, and she said at the very last, people will literally worship you. Well, ballet became my life. But that night, when I heard the review after my first dance, solo dance, I was just thought my world was falling apart. Let me take a sip here. <clears throat> and I, it was, I had some playmates, however, who had taken me to church with them. And I was very thrilled to be there. My mother, at least, even though she didn't believe, but she gave me the options. And I loved it in the church, and it was an Easter morning, so invited me to an Easter service. And it was that day, and I was not quite seven, that Christ came into my life. And I get very teary because I am so overwhelmed what the Lord has done in my life and sometimes that really gets me to become very emotional. Yes. I have to ask you to forgive me. That, no, that's uh, none, none so required. Listen, uh, Anita, let me just uh, jump in here and remind listeners, Anita Dittman is with us and her story told. Uh, in Trapped in Hitler's Hell, a young Jewish girl discovers the Messiah's faithfulness in the midst of the Holocaust, but we'll, we, we, we will uh, also get around to discussing her warning uh, that what she sees going on in America right now, there are parallels uh, to what happened in the uh, in the early days of Hitler's okay. Nazi Germany. Uh, Anita, we'll hold on. We'll take a break. We'll come back and continue the conversation sure. with Anita Dittman, trapped in Hitler's hell, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, Anita Dittman is here, and her story is told in the uh, the new book, Trapped in Hitler's Hell. There's also a DVD documentary of the same name. And uh, Anita with us uh, this evening on The Conspiracy Show. Now, Anita, you know, we in, in the 40 minutes that we have, we can't possibly uh, do justice to uh, oh, yeah, your, your remarkable that. story. So what, what yeah. I'd like you to do is let's just talk for uh, when the Gestapo uh, came and, and, and started, you know, taking – tearing your family apart, essentially, and uh, tell us then can what I happened. Just, can I just quickly finish that at that time on Easter Day that Jesus came into my life, and it was a total wonderful uh, situation. Unfortunately, my mother and my sister didn't believe it, but anyway, I, it was from then on, almost age seven, that... Um, <clears throat> my life began to change inwardly, even though it was horrible outside there, you know, in the world, but I had an inner peace that I would not want to trade in for anything else. I um, realized then that God didn't want me to live to be worshipped like my teacher had predicted. He wanted me to live to worship him. Okay. 
I just had to tell you that. Okay, that's all right. So now the the um, uh, after it, uh, Germany invaded Poland, obviously, um, you know, things started to spiral downhill very quickly for for Jews living in Germany and elsewhere in mm-hmm. Europe. But but what happened to your family when when you know when that that knock that horrible knock came at your door? Yeah, that was. Oh, I was about uh, not quite sixteen when that happened on uh, January 7th, 1944, after a lot of people in our building had already been picked up. This this time it was my mother's turn to be picked up, and I was just horrified when my mother opened the door. And two Nazi guards walked in and grabbed my mother by the coat, set her down in our room because we lived in a ghetto house then um, with four families sharing one apartment. And she had to sign a statement that all the furniture and all the belongings in our room that we occupied were her property. And they put red labels on everything and uh, informed me that everything that had a red label on, I was not allowed to touch. And that the next day, the um, uh, Gestapo officials from the warehouse would come and pick everything up because this is the property of the state now. And if I wanted anything back, I'd have to purchase it back. Well, I was subjected to heavy factory labor that was poorly paid. I couldn't afford to do things. But my mother was able to, before they picked her up and took her to the gathering place in town, um, that they were going to be shipped off the next day, I, um, she gave me my father's phone number. He had um, moved to a different city, and she said, call him and see he, if he could help you. And he came the next day, and he did help me so that I do, didn't lose everything. Yeah, the only thing they would have left me would have been, if my father wouldn't have helped, would be my bed and my personal belongings. I didn't know at first where they had sent my mother, but when I found out something wonderful happened, that they were allowed to, oh, maybe once or twice a month, to receive a food package. And I was so blessed that um, I was able to do that. However, our rations were pretty scant, but the Lord helped me to make that sacrifice because my mother made a lot of sacrifices for almost 16 years, and now it was my turn to reciprocate. And I, even though I lived on a very, very, very poor diet. God kept me strong, and uh, I had energy to give away, and I was spared from all the um, flus and colds and epidemics. It's amazing what God can do. It's just almost beyond human understanding. And uh, at one point, about six months after they had picked up my mother, I decided that I would not include the dark German rye bread, the, the German bread over there is solid like a rock. You can almost sit on it without making a dent into it. And she was always delighted to have it. But that one morning I woke up and I said, I'm not going to get the dark bread. I'm going to get her Swiebach. And sure enough, 10 days later, I got a card from her thanking me for the Swiebach because she had been stricken with dysentery, a very dangerous uh, the, uh, digestive disease, and she couldn't digest the dark bread, and she had literally knelt down by her cot at night 
and pray to God to inspire me to send her Swiebuck. And Remarkable. I said, what a hot line to heaven. It's just awesome what God did for me. Where was your mother taken? Theresienstadt was a big concentration camp in Czechoslovakia. And uh, Germans, her, her sisters the, also were taken there, were they not? Pardon? Your mother's sisters were also, your mother's sister, oh, yeah. your Aunt Kate? I don't was know, also, no, no, I don't know where they t- took them, because they picked the, my uh, aunts, three aunts lived up with us. They, I don't know where they, they were just picked up, and we never knew where they went and whether what happened to them. But no, to, not to Theresienstadt. My mother was the only one that was sent there. And uh, what happened to your mother eventually? Well, my mother, we were separated for about 18 months. And out of those 18 months, 11, we did not hear from each other. I was then, eventually, it was about, my mother was picked up in January, and I was uh, taken to a camp in um, August. However, they did not pick me up. They notified me because I had just a little bit of Aryan blood in my veins, you see, that made a difference. And yet, Hitler tried to destroy anybody that had any Jewish, any trace of Jewish blood in their veins. So when I had to go, I had time to think. And I prayed to God. I said, God, excuse me, my throat is kind of dry. I... I had a, a time to think, and so I went to a grocery store, picked up a loaf of bread with a label on one end, trimmed the label off, uh, took a knife, rolled a, a letter around the knife, and stuck it way, way deep inside the bread, put the label back on, and then asked one of my Aryan friends that lived in a little ways from me if she would come yet in the evening and pick up the loaf of bread that I had wrapped and send it to my mother because I was shipped off the next day. She did. And I prayed over that loaf of bread that it wouldn't fall into the hands of a Nazi guide because it was a known factor that many times they would help themselves for food out of the packages. They were well fed. They didn't need that out of nastiness. So I prayed. I said, Lord, protect this loaf of bread because if... uh, a Nazi guide would have gotten the bread and found the note in it. They would have killed my mother. Well, I didn't find out until 11 months later that for the very first time, the bed had arrived totally covered with um, green mold covering the entire bread. The Lord put it there so the the bread wouldn't fall into the hands of a Nazi guide. They wouldn't have touched it. So she got the letter. What was written in the letter? In the letter, I wrote to her very gently that I will have to be gone for a little while and not to worry about me. Everything will be okay, and one of these days we will all be together again. And that's all I said. Well, she could read between the lines. and um, But it was so awesome how the Lord even took care of a loaf of bread. Can you help me read in between the lines, uh, Anita? What What did you mean by that? Well that I would have to go to a camp and I couldn't continue to send her food anymore. Okay. And and, and uh, where were you sent? Where did I send it? No, where were you sent? Oh, I was sent to Camp Barthold, which was a special camp 
that was organized by the Nazis to put people who had one Aryan and one uh, Jewish uh, parent. And we were about, ooh, probably about 300 people to begin with. And the women lived in, it was not, didn't have barbed wire around it. It was in a village, but it was in a place of the village where there were no houses or, or anything. We, um, the women were housed in a filthy old cow barn that was never cleaned out and only covered with a thick layer of straw. And our toilet facility was an, facility was an open ditch. The, the men lived uh, just a few yards from us in a horse stable under similar circumstances. We were awakened at 4 in the morning. We were given, uh, this was August oh, 10th when I, was, uh, when I went to the camp. And we, wore, we could wear sh- uh, T-shirts and shorts, but we had to wear heavy shoes. We were allowed to bring only a knapsack full of meager belongings. Well, we were given a, a little cup of instant coffee, that kind of fake imitation coffee, and a piece of bread, and then they loaded us up with shovels, spades, and picks, and we were marched off for an hour. Then we got to an open area, and we were told that we were going to be digging ditches and that we should be so grateful that we can work for the fatherland, you know. It was a special privilege, yeah, right. And we worked about, I would say, 8 to 10 hours in the burning sun. We, the ditches were about, I would say, 8 feet deep and uh, 15 feet wide, and then about, I don't know how many kilometers long. And the, these ditches were supposed to be used as a tank trap tank trap in case the Russians should be invading the country. Sure. I mean, this, this is nearing the end of, uh, of um, you know, Hitler's reign, obviously, just a, less than a year later, Germany would, yeah. would fall. Yeah. But uh, did, you, did you feel, in, in, in a sense, though, that you, what you were doing was you were digging your own grave? I mean, did that thought enter your mind at that time? <laughs> well, <laughs> it crossed our mind, yes, but there's nothing we could do. But um, <clears throat> we then, when winter came, we were moved to a different location out in the country again, and we're doing a very heavy labor in the forest. Now we were battling the winter elements, and it was tough. And we all contracted lice from the, for the lack of sanitation. It was tough, but then we found out also, and that was around the late of November, that our care, as soon as our work was completed, we would be shipped to Auschwitz to be cremated. So, you know, no matter how tough things got, no matter how hungry we were, how cold and wet, and, and it was devastating, but we were just thankful that we weren't in Auschwitz yet. Right. And, and so you had that looming over your head. How old were you at this point? Seventeen. Seventeen. And so you thought that was your future. You were going to be cremated in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. My Lord. So then, this is really... Now, I don't know if you want me to go on, or do you want to ask me the next question? Or Well, we are, uh, we're coming up on a break. I, I think what I'd like to do is, um, when we come back, uh, yeah. I'd, I'd like to sort of you know, talk about uh, you know, how, how you managed to survive and why you're yeah. still with us. 
what yes, happened I, to your family. And then, uh, then I, I'd like to talk about this warning that yeah. you have uh, for America that uh, well, I tried to history is repeating itself. Yeah. Well, let's 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 continue the conversation until uh, until we go into that break. I mean, I mean, how yeah. did you avoid Auschwitz, Anita? Well, <laughs> the Lord did that, and that's what I want to come to. Um, it was about now the twenty um, third of January in the evening that we were all ordered outside with our knapsacks and stand information. And it was very, very overcast. You couldn't see a thing. And uh, so there were five girls all together, four and, and I. We had always bonded. And we had always said that someday we hope that we can escape. Well, it didn't happen that night. We marched. Those of us that didn't escape that night, we marched and marched and marched. and thought they were going to, you know, <laughs> kind of like a death march. Then they found another location farther west. And um, there, again, we did very extremely heavy labor. And my shoes were out, and I was given a pair of shoes with a wooden sole and rough tops. And eventually, from all the walking on icing, icy roads and lugging heavy loads of stuff, I rubbed a blister on my heel, not on the bottom, but around the back of the heel and that blister grew very very large about the length of a thumb and we had no good i mean we couldn't wash our clothes anymore we couldn't wash our bodies anymore and the blister popped and dirt got in and pretty soon i noticed that my foot was turning color oh dear okay listen anita i've got sorry uh, forgive me i've got to jump in here we'll uh, we'll continue this conversation after this quick timeout anita dittman trapped in hitler's hell and her warning 70 years later to america back with more of the conspiracy show my name is richard serrett don't go away hey welcome back uh, back to my conversation with anita dittman in just a moment just wanted to remind you uh jim mars uh, the author of alien agenda crossfire the plot that killed kennedy the rise of the fourth reich the trillion dollar conspiracy our occulted history coming here to toronto a very rare opportunity to uh, to meet Jim and to hear him speak. I'll be uh, emceeing. Uh, Conspiracy Culture is presenting. This is June 22nd at the Bloor Cinema. Please don't miss out on this rare opportunity to get to see Jim Mars, his first and perhaps last trip to Toronto. And for ticket information, you can uh, call 416-916-1696 uh, or visit conspiracyculture.com for more details. Conspiracyculture.com. All right, uh, Anita, you were uh, describing just on the um, the eve of your being shipped to the uh, the death camp in Auschwitz, uh, uh, you developed an infection uh, in your foot. Now, this mm-hmm. somehow led well, to your um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, we were still working in Germany. We hadn't been shipped off yet, but we knew any day it could be. However, I could not let anybody know that I was sick. I started to feel feverish. My foot turned color, and I didn't even dare to limp. And the only person that I told this to were two people because that I trusted because they could have turned me into the Nazi leaders and they would have shot me, either that or clubbed me to death, because people who they thought were not well enough, although I did work, 
but they would have a good excuse to do away with me. So I, the Lord gave me strength to carry on. Well, then um, the, the 11th of February, the Russians were coming closer, and uh, we were all transported off to another camp. And this camp, when the women, the men were kept behind, and uh, I was so glad that we were hauled off by horse-drawn wagons that were chauffeured by Polish prisoners of war, and we were followed by a couple of guides. When we finally reached our new destination, in destination, it was still kind of dark outside, early in the morning. Pretty soon, when we got there, the iron gate swung open, and they were the whole complex of barracks with a smokestack rising into heaven, and we knew exactly what that would be. So that morning, and I'm not going to detail because it's all written very clearly in my book, I, it was so amazing. The night before we were, we, we were transported off, we five of us prayed that if it was the Lord's will, would he deliver us out of the hands of our persecutors? And he did. He literally used angels in human form, I would say, to help the five of us to get away. So awesome. I, I don't have enough time to go into detail, but it was so overwhelming. Every year I realized that, you know, what, what the Lord did, and I would read it in my book and recall what happened, and it's just so fantastic what the Lord could do. My entire life, those 12 and a half years, it was one miracle after another. And your mother? And what happened to your mother, Anita? She was still in Camp Tresienstadt because the war had not been over. The Germans were still ruling, and um, uh, I ended up finally ended up in the home of the in-laws of my um one of the girls had escaped with me, and there I had to be transferred to a hospital because the infection had just raged in my body, and I fell into the hands of a Nazi nurse. And under the first surgery, the doctor evidently was not a Nazi, but under the first anesthesia, when they drilled holes in my foot to extract the infection because there were no antibiotics, I must have talked because when I woke up, this Nazi nurse that had, um, you know, had been given me the anesthesia, she found out, I must have talked and revealed who I was and where I came from, and I noticed when I woke up, she said to the doctor, my, my, did that little girl ever talk a lot? And I could tell immediately, because she was a Nazi pin, so that means she was a, the member of the party, and she took it out on me. And you see, there was a a medal for every Nazi that would kill a Jew, and she took that upon herself for six weeks. I underwent, because of what she did and the unsanitary conditions that prevailed due to her, um, I, uh, the infection did not clear up. In fact, got worse, and what she did was horrible things she did. And But yet, you know, when I had my fourth surgery and I had huge cuts in my upper leg so that they put tubes in there from each end. My girlfriend came to see me again, and she said, Anita, why did God permit that? He, I said, 
don't ask that question. God knows what he's doing, and who knows? My wounds might be my protection. And two weeks later, when the Russians came to town, and a fierce, to town, and a fierce battle started, and the Russians came down into the air raid shelter where most of us were herded, um, they started raping. And when they came to my place where I was, a cart that I shared with three other women, they pulled me off the, the cart and threw me on a mattress. And there were men, women, and children in that air raid shelter. And right in front of them, they were going to help themselves to me. But when they saw the bloody bandage, they asked one of the um, student nurses to come over and unwrap the bandage. And when she unwrapped the last bit of the bandage, the pus gritted out of those tubes like a geyser. And I'm not exaggerating. Oh, dear. And there it was what I had predicted. There was your saving grace. My word. Listen, Anita, we've got to take another time out. When we come back, we'll find out your warning for America 70 years later. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Anita Dittman, trapped in Hitler's hell. Stay with us. It's a remarkable story of uh, courage, forgiveness, and faithfulness, and it's all detailed uh, including all of the horror. Uh, trapped in Hitler's hell, Anita Dittman is uh, with us, Holocaust survivor. Uh, we've only got, uh, let's say, 12 minutes here, mm-hmm. uh, Anita. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about, on, on this program, I talk a lot about the the, the descent into tyranny uh, mm-hmm. that I see transpiring, not just in the United States, but uh, elsewhere around the world. And uh, for some, I, I know that that falls on deaf ears. They say come on, you're, you're being outlandish, you're exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes from a Holocaust survivor, I think we all need to stand up and take notice because you experienced Hitler's hell first, firsthand. What, what do you see that's happening in America that is so reminiscent of, of Hitler's Germany? Well, one thing, and I found that out through Jan Markell, <clears throat> and various, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm, Locked up like that. <clears throat> uh, Jan and other people who are in the, uh, you know, world, I mean, in the uh, business of testifying for the Lord, I was told that um, semi anti Semitism is gaining grounds here in the United States. Plus, um, also the. Uh, Less opportunities, less um, witnessing for me in secular schools is almost going getting to the point of non-existent anymore. I used to be able to speak to secular schools and Christian schools alike. Now I can o- am only allowed to speak in the Christian schools because, and I was invited to speak in a school in Rogers and. Um, I was told then, no, if I don't, can't take Christ out of my message, I can't come. And it happened more and more and more. And there's also people that have a Christian radio program in other parts of the United States where they are also being monitored. Their conversations are being listened into. And I have some friends who have a, a program in the East. So also... Um, like well, I said, it's you've talked, you've more talked, and more and more schools in Minnesota um, are being watched, and uh, the schools are now dictating to the parents, 
that they should not spend so much time with reading the Bible to children. It's too, too scary. And kids are being sent home and punished if they have a Christian emblem or a cross or something on their folders. And it's getting worse that way. Well, you, you've also spoken publicly, um, Anita, about yeah. the, this messianic view of the current president of the United States and why you find that's uh, and and we go back to 2008 and and the campaign yeah. uh, and there were those who uh you know uh, Barbara Walters for example who who used that term messianic uh, when she yeah. referred to uh, uh, Obama and, I, and and Chris Matthews uh, from MNBC MSNBC also yeah. what why what is the parallel there uh, between this messianic view of Barack Obama and what you experienced in Germany in the 1930s. What do you mean by messianic view? You mean the the dislikes for Israel? No, they were referring to Obama as the Messiah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, even from Europe came some letters while he was campaigning as the new savior. And that was exactly when Hitler was campaigning and when Hitler started rising Well, he made himself the Savior. And I noticed also even in the churches, uh, people are very blind, uninformed and blind. Well, it's one thing, okay, uh, and I'm sure someone has, you know, mentioned this before, Anita. It's it's one thing uh, to have this... um, Adoration for for a for a figure for a president, uh, yeah. but it's another it's another thing. I mean, Hitler murdered millions and millions of people. Yes. Uh, so I know. so how could how can one make the connection between what's going on in the United States now and it Hit- hasn't gotten to that extreme yet, but the signs are pointing because of the control of people and the. Um, control over families, even another thing, too, is our medical system. Uh, There's a chance that older people will not be able to get the treatment that they must have, which is also um, in the same in Germany under Hitler. They went after the older people, you know, let's eliminate them, the older people, the Jews, and uh, the kids that were not, you know, mentally ill, born mentally ill. And um, I can understand that good uh, believing Christians in churches even voted for a man like who has that kind of an attitude. Well, I mean, this, this process, uh, I call it the sort of the slow, almost imperceptible march towards totalitarianism. I call it a soft totalitarianism. Yes. Obviously, we don't have you know, people running around in brown shirts and, no. and a crystal knock and all of that. Uh, so, I mean, it's far more subtle and far more gradual. Yes. It happened in Germany oh, yes. fairly oh, yes. quickly. But, I mean, yeah. the, when you look at Nazi Germany in the 1930s, an incredibly sophisticated, uh, literate um, a society, progressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did it? I mean, and, and you mentioned that your, your father was a Aryan, so there yeah. was, in, you know, there was intermarriage, intermarriage between Aryans yes. and Jews, and, and so forth. How did it 
unravel so quickly? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, and what is so odd is that many people in Germany denied that it could ever have happened, and they thought we were lying. Then when he talked about it, oh, the Hitler, he would have never done anything like that. And they, you see, they controlled the radio, they controlled the, the news media. Well, it's happening here, too. And um, they kind of sh- blinded people from hearing the truth. And people <laughs> are not, you know, it doesn't take very much, you know, when you make certain promises like uh, Obama did and, and Hitler did, people go for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not German. a fan of uh, President Obama, and I've spoken about that publicly. I, I, I mean, I'm uncomfortable making that connection uh, between... Hitler and Barack Obama. I, I mean, I don't think it's 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 the it's the person in the White House. I mean, I think it's the the power structure around him. How do you feel about Could that? Very well be. Yeah. How do but, I, I mean? How he do does you, not he does not like Israel? That's for sure. How are other Holocaust survivors that you know? How are they responding to this message that you're giving? Your, your warning that there are parallels? I don't know, because I don't know that many Holocaust survivors. No. I don't. There are quite a few in and this, uh, the city I'm living in. is very large, but I do not know. I did go to the Holocaust march on the 26th of April. No, the 27th of April. and uh, But many people I did not know. What is, what is your worst your worst fear then for America? Uh, what do you see, unless things change dramatically, what, what do you see control. happening? Control. The government is controlling everything. And even, you know, as I mentioned, the, I used to belong to the um, uh, an organization that uh, family and uh, – I can't remember now, but anyway – I used to support them, and they were working feverishly to have more protection for kids, that they're not going to be controlled and forbidden to do this and that. I mean, there's more and more government controlled in all areas. We have rumors. And and, uh, political and everything. I'm sure you're familiar with these rumors out there that uh, there are these secret FEMA camps. Uh, Yeah. What are your What are your thoughts on on on? on I don't know. That? Can you talk a little louder? There are there are rumors out there, and I'm sure you've heard them. That FEMA, uh, the Federal Emergency Measures Agency in the United States, have yeah. these secret camps, internment camps, situated around the United States. Oh, I uh, in, yeah, in I the, heard something, but I don't know any details. But but you've heard the rumors. What are your thoughts as a Holocaust survivor to think that there may be these? these internment camps secretly awaiting some catastrophic, who knows, some event, some excuse uh, to round up people and put them in these camps? I, it sounds horrible. I don't know much about that, to be very honest with you. But I have heard bits and pieces, and it scares me. Yes, it does. What other, what other uh, recent developments? I mean, we had the, the revelations of Edward Snowden, for example, about the, uh, the NSA spying on virtually all of us. Um, yeah. yep. I mean, let, let, let's talk about Snowden just for a minute. I mean, did that, how did that information 
make you feel that that uh, the NSA was spying on virtually every American? It, like I said, it reminds me of Hitler Germany. What would you say to people listening, uh, Anita, who would say, "Well, it can't happen here. United, the United States is not Nazi Germany. No way, no how, and it's ridiculous to make the connection." What would you say to those people? I tell them, "Well, you better pray that your illusion <laughs> develops, because I'm afraid it's not going to be this way. It's going to happen if we don't watch out." And what can we do, though? I usually, as to Christians, or even non-Christian kids in school, when I do, you know, meet anybody, school kids, uh, even the Christian kids, I say, stand up for your faith, and don't be afraid that you might be disliked by your peers. Stand up for it, and stand up for, for Christ. And I do that, too, and I don't know, someday, you know, I don't know what might happen to me, but there's so much control. And then I mentioned that my friends in the East, they're already being monitored, and uh, they even have wrong uh, names for themselves because they've been uh, receiving strange letters, and... I'm sure it's probably happening to many other religious broadcasting. Well, and I, I wonder how long, I wonder how long many of our religious broadcasting networks, such as yours and Jan Markell's and others, I wonder how long this is going to last. Well, Anita, listen, I want to thank you for spending some time with us. And uh, for those who want to, uh, to hear the full story of what you endured and how you survived, and your remarkable story of, of courage uh, can read Trapped in Hitler's Hell. And uh, there's also a DVD uh, of the same name, Trapped in Hitler's Hell. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Anita. Thanks for inviting Yeah, I wish I could have told the whole thing, but I think people can get it from the book. Absolutely, they will. And Thank they you. they could get the book through Amazon, and they can also get the book directly for WND. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Good night. Bye-bye. RichardSerrett.com is the website. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Thanks for inviting me into your home and your head. Thank you for your ears. And as always, my prayer for you is wherever you are, you are safe, dry, warm, and well-fed. Again, I, uh, I want to remind you, Jim Mars coming to town June 21st and 22nd. So the 21st, there is a, that's a Saturday, a special uh, a meet and greet book signing opportunity at uh, Conspiracy Culture, 1696 Queen Street West. Our good friends Patrick and Kadena, of course, presenting the legendary investigative reporter Jim Mars, his first and perhaps last trip uh, to Toronto. I'll be emceeing an afternoon on Mars at the Bloor Cinema on the 22nd, that's Sunday, where Jim will be delivering a very special uh, presentation on our hidden history from ancient astronauts to 9-11 in a way only Jim Mars can deliver. Again, a rare oppor- uh, opportunity to see the man in the flesh. Uh, and then after after the, uh, the two-hour uh, session at the Bloor Cinema, we'll be heading across the street to the Popper Pub where you'll get to hoist a few jars with Jim Mars and again meet him and speak with him. Uh, Jim Mars, of course, the, uh, the author of Rule by Secrecy, uh, uh, Crossfire. That's the book that inspired Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. 
the rise of the Fourth Reich, the, um, uh, the, the trillion dollar conspiracy, so many great books. Get information, uh, and they're going fast, uh, uh, Patrick tells me. Uh, call Patrick and Kadena, 416 916 1696, or visit conspiracyculture.com for more details. Uh, while we're talking about website, uh, websites, please uh, pay a visit to my website, richardserrett.com, and I want to thank all of you who've already registered. And I know, I, I promised once we hit uh, 500 members, I would start cranking out the, uh, the weekly newsletter, and I ha- I've completed the newsletter, uh, and it's called the Dead Drop Newsletter. It's written, but I'm just waiting on some further instructions from my webmaster on how to deliver it, because I'm... For those of you who know me, I'm a bit of a techno peasant, so I've got to, uh, you know, working with Joomla, which is my the operating system, I guess, for my website. I've got to get that figured out anyway. It's it's written, and hopefully early this week, I'll send that out to those of you who've registered. the uh, The first installment of the Dead Drop News Letter. And if you haven't registered at Ritcom, please do so. It's easy, and of course, it's free. While you're there at richardserrett.com, uh, please take a moment. Take part in our poll question. If you click on the red vote button, which is about three-quarters down on the right-hand side, that'll take you to our, our latest poll question where I'm asking you. And this, this sort of helps me when I'm booking the show. I want you to identify the area within the sort of conspiracy paranormal field that you're most interested in. Again, that helps me. It's kind of uh, marketing information. It helps me know what you're interested in, and then I can take that information when I'm booking the show and so forth. Anyway, uh, UFOs, not surprisingly, is right up near the top at the moment. UFOs and ETs. And, of course, we've uh, most of us have heard of close encounters of the third kind. But what about close encounters of the fatal kind? The field of uh, UFOs is rife with unsettling examples of suspicious deaths, accounts of accidents that might not have been accidents after all, researchers and witnesses of vanished, never to be seen again, conveniently timed heart attacks are reported, out-of-the-blue suicides that, upon investigation, bear the distinct hallmarks of murder are all too common, and grisly deaths at the hands of both extraterrestrials and government agents have occurred. Well, that's where we're going for the next 45 minutes or so. Nick Redfern is an author, lecturer, journalist, who writes about a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot and, of course, the aforementioned UFOs, alien encounters, government conspiracies. His previous books include For Nobody's Eyes Only, Monster Files, The World's Weirdest Places, The Pyramids in the Pentagon, Keep Out, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, and Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. He's also appeared on numerous television shows and networks, including Fox News, The History Channel's Ancient Aliens, Monster Quest, UFO Hunters, of course, VH1's Legend Hunters, National Geographic Channel's The Truth About UFOs and Paranatural, uh, BBC's Out of This World, MSNBC's Countdown, and uh, he's been on this program a number of times, and we're always uh, pleased when Nick Redfern drops by. And uh, his brand-new book is entitled Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, Suspicious Deaths, 
mysterious murders, and bizarre disappearances in UFO history. Nick Redfern, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good. Uh, interesting phrase. I've never heard it uh, 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 sort of spelled out that way. Close encounters of the fatal kind. Because, you know, for many of us, when, when we're talking about UFOs, the lights in the sky, uh, we're thinking, well, it's a kind of a curious phenomena, but we don't necessarily associate this more sinister side to it. Sure, we know about alien abductions and people being poked and prodded and so forth. But now we're talking about murder most foul. Um, what led you to write this sort of or examine and investigate this more sinister side of the, the UFO uh, phenomenon? Well, basically, if we go back to when the whole UFO or the modern era of ufology kicked off in the summer of 1947 <clears throat> with the Kenneth Arnold sighting over Washington State and also the Roswell event in New Mexico, uh, we've got sort of 70 years of reports, thousands of reports, and during that period there have been literally hundreds and hundreds of people who've immersed themselves in the UFO subject, whether witnesses, uh, people have had experiences, uh, abductees, and, and writers and researchers. Now, of course, over the course of 70 years, there's been a lot of deaths in the field. Most of them are just regular deaths. You know, we're all human at the end of the day. But one of the things I found doing research um, was that every so often a, a death would crop up that didn't just seem to be you know, a regular death where regular accident or suicide or whatever, it seemed to have a lot of dark and disturbing angles to it. And so I spent about 18 months digging deeply into all the various deaths that had occurred in ufology over the years, um, siphoning out the sort of the, the, the straightforward, the innocent and so forth from the other cases. And so that's, that's basically what I've done is to put together a sort of a compendium of from 40 from the 40s right through to the present day of deaths within ufology that, upon investigation, don't just seem to be, you know, a case of, of a regular death, that there seems to be something more to it. And interestingly, it seems to be the case that when somebody's getting a little bit too close to the truth, that those are the cases where it seems that these coincidental deaths, if you like, seem to occur. Now, are we talking about sort of a, a Kennedy death list where we're talking about uh, witnesses that, got, that may have gotten too close to the truth, have been taken out by men in black? But are, or, and are, you, are, are you also including uh, possible deaths at the hands of ETs? Well, yeah, it's actually a bit of both. I mean, you, the analogy with the Kennedy assassination is an interesting one because there are a f quite a few cases I talk about in the book where it's not just one death. Um, like the Kennedy assassination in some of these events, it's four or five deaths. In one particular chapter I include in the book, there's no less than 34 deaths linked with one particular UFO-related issue. So in that sense... Um, you know, we have um, hand, uh, deaths at the hands of, of humans. Now, on the other hand, we have certain cases where there's a distinct possibility that the deaths were at the hands of the intelligences behind the UFO phenomenon. Uh, we're talking here sort of pilot uh, deaths and pilot disappearances as well, where we don't even have the body. We just, just don't know what happened to them. We're forced to speculate that they were either killed, kidnapped, or just vanished into oblivion. We just don't really know. 
Well, let's let's dial it back to uh, to Roswell uh, mm-hmm. in July 1947. And um, a number of suspicious deaths, obviously, that surround uh, the Roswell UFO crash. Let's let's detail some yeah. of those. Well, I guess when people think of dead bodies and Roswell, they think of the reported dead aliens. You know, you don't necessarily think of dead humans in connection with Roswell. But there are actually a number of very weird deaths associated with Roswell that go right back to the days of the incidents and extend as late as 1989. Now, the rancher who found the wreckage at the time, uh, Mac Brazel, on the Foster Ranch in Lincoln County, New Mexico, um, there are indications that he may have seen other things and not just this weird, strange foil that was strewn all over the ranch. There are a lot of rooms that he may have seen bodies or decomposing body parts and was and was threatened not to talk about this. There's also been a story that his son, uh, Vern Brazel, um, also uh, was witness to some of these body parts and was traumatized by it. Now, that, of course, is a sort of rumor and speculation, but what is kind of intriguing but also tragic is that uh, he was only a young child at the time, but when he became old enough, um, he left New Mexico totally behind and travelled out to California and, and basically blew his brains out, killed himself. Um, and there have been a couple of people like that who didn't cope very well with the aftermath of the incident. Um, Jesse Marcel, uh, Major Jesse Marcel, who recovered um, part of the strange wreckage from the ranch, his son, the late Jesse Marcel Jr., um, spoke about how his father, after the incident, descended into full-blown alcoholism uh, fortunately pulled himself out of it, but the trauma of that affected him. And another one, a very weird death, um, occurred in 1989, a woman named Miriam Bush. Now, Miriam Bush was the executive secretary at the Roswell Military Base Hospital in the summer of 1947. And when the incident occurred, um, she actually confided in her family at the time. They've since gone public, but she confided in her family that she'd seen these strange little bodies brought into the hospital um, for at least examination, if not a full-blown autopsy. And um, she, over the years, she also uh, became full-blown alcoholic, and the family said that she lived basically in fear of, of what she'd seen. And then in 1989, something very strange happened. She started to think that someone was watching her or following her. Um, And she became very fearful for her life. And um, in her last couple of days, she actually checked into a hotel room using her uh, sister's name and was found dead in the room with a plastic bag over her head um, and and essentially looked like she'd been uh, sort of strangled. But um, it was put down to suicide, but there were indications that it wasn't. And that's just one case, Roswell. All right, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, continue our conversation. The more sinister side of the UFO phenomena with Nick Redfern talking about close encounters of the fatal kind. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. 
Nick Redfern is with us. His brand new book, Hot Off the Presses, is Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. And we were talking about uh, some of the mysterious deaths surrounding the uh, UFO crash near Roswell, New Mexico in July of 1947. And um, there is uh, the story that Glenn Dennis uh, uh, told, Nick. Uh, Glenn, of course, was the young mortician working at uh, Ballard Funeral Homes uh, in Roswell at the time and, of course, receives a call from the uh, Roswell Army uh, airfield uh, asking for whether he has uh, child-sized coffins uh, that mm-hmm. should be delivered to the base. And uh, uh, he eventually goes out to the base. Uh, he told the, he tells the story or told the story of, of, of meeting a nurse uh, out uh, there uh, who talked to him about witnessing an autopsy uh, on these uh, aliens and described this horrific smell uh, and then warned Glenn that he better get the hell out of there. Um, that woman supposedly disappeared. Did you ever track down what happened to her and who she was? Mm, well, wh- one of the best indications is she was the woman I mentioned before the break. Oh, that uh, was Miriam Bush. Bush. That was well, Miriam Bush. That's one of the speculations. Ah. Because the problem is that um, Glenn Dennis admitted that he never revealed the real name of the nurse. He said that he wanted for her own privacy to to keep it secret. Now, what's interesting is that Miriam Bush wasn't a nurse at the hospital, but she was the hospital um, executive secretary. Um, so she did work at the hospital. And, and the important thing is she told her family in 47 that she'd seen these weird bodies. So the, the chances are it probably was um, Glenn Dennis's nurse. Uh, but what's even more intriguing is that in 1980, it was in 1989 that Glenn Dennis went public with his story about the nurse. And it was only a couple of months later that Miriam Bush started talking about how she felt she was being watched and followed, and then she was found dead. So this has sort of given rise to the theory that whoever was keeping the secret of Roswell may have realized that Glenn Dennis had essentially gone public with her story, if not her name. And if somebody tracked her down, then the whole thing could come tumbling out. But of course, that didn't happen because her death intervened just like two months before Glenn Dennis told his story. There were also rumors uh, that after the uh, UFO UFO crashes, because mm-hmm. there was more than one, of course, uh, in Corona, New Mexico, near Roswell, that there was very quickly uh, Secret Service agents on the ground threatening people uh, and that the sheriff at the time, George Wilcox, was given instructions to threaten people uh, not to talk publicly about it. Uh, and further, uh, the people were warned if they did speak publicly, they and their entire families would be killed and essentially you know, buried out someplace in the vast desert never to be found. Do we know – I mean you, you're sort of uh, – you're, you're taking this uh, story into the future and talking about people that have died subsequently. But is there any evidence to suggest that there were people killed – and buried somewhere in the immediate aftermath of the of the UFO crash. No, I've, I've not come across anything along those lines at all. No, but we know that 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 that, that Wilcox uh, refused to run for re-election because I guess he felt so horrible about having to threaten people. Is that yeah, is I that mean, true? Well, one of the people who we who is still alive and who has gone on the record as stating that her and her family were threatened with their lives um, is Frankie Rowe. Um, her father was somebody who was involved um, in the in the aftermath of the event, and um, she 
has unequivocally said, you know, we, we our lives were threatened, and um, and that's her real name, Frankie Rowe. You know, you can find her story on the internet, and um, and she went public with it, and still stands by it to this day. So, um, you know, there's people were essentially had the fear of God put into them, and I think that's why so many people did remain silent. I'm sure a lot of people have gone to their graves, you know, with the stories that they knew, and never really spoke out. You know, for even sort of 50, 60 years afterwards, worried that somebody was still watching them, perhaps. There's a, a, another case that occurred in 1947 that has really, in many ways, been forgotten. It's been overshadowed by Roswell, but it's the Maury Island uh, case in Washington State where we had the the case of an alleged mid-air explosion of a flying saucer uh, and uh, the deaths of two military personnel. Tell me about the, uh, the Maury Island uh, case. Well, sure. Well, Maury Island actually occurred just a couple of days before the famous Kenneth Arnold sighting over Washington State. Maury Island was also um, Washington State, and specifically uh, Tacoma, which is where Maury Island is situated. And the primary witness was a man named Harold Dahl. And Harold Dahl worked in the harbour of Maury Island. And when he was out there one particular morning, saw this almost like a squadron of flying saucers going over but they had sort of the centers cored out so they were kind of like a donut shape um one of them was acting in a very weird erratic fashion and suddenly exploded in midair sharing all this weird wreckage down into the into the water some of which sort of floated towards the um to the shoreline and Dahl was amazed uh, by this incident obviously and um when he got back to the shore, he collected some of this material as much as he could and handed it, some of it over to a, a friend and colleague uh, named Fred Chrisman, who was basically superior. But Chrisman appears to have had like a cover job as well because he turned up also later in the Kennedy assassination. But um, what happened was that um, Kenneth Arnold was actually hired by Ray Palmer, who edited Amazing um, Stories magazine at the time, to go out and investigate the Maury Island case. And because it attracted a lot of local media attention at the time, it also attracted the attention of the military. And what happened was that um, two military men, uh, Lieutenant uh, Frank Mercer Brown and Captain William Lee Davidson of Army Intelligence, actually flew out to Maury Island and the the order was that they should get together as much of this wreckage as they could and fly it to Wright Field, Ohio, which is now called Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where it could be examined to see what it was. An infamous well, Hangar 18. I'm sorry? An infamous Hangar 18. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's where you get a lot of the stories about crashed UFOs and dead alien rumors from at, at Wright-Patterson. Uh, Wright um but unfortunately, they didn't make it to the base because shortly after taking off from a place called McCord Field, the, the plane they were flying in, a, a Boeing B-29, burst into flames and crashed to the ground, and both Davidson and, and Brown were killed. And interestingly, but also suspiciously, when the cleanup crew got there, they found that this curious uh, wreckage that they were bringing with them was just gone suggesting that maybe somebody else had got there before the official clean-up crew and had removed whatever this material was for, you know, who knows what purposes. But um, that was only the start of the deaths. Um, two local media men who were reporting on the story quite actively, Ted Morello 
and uh, the other one, um, Paul Lance. Paul Lance, yeah. and they both died under odd circumstances to the point where nobody, even doing the autopsy, was really sure what it was that had killed them. It was just a very strange situation. And Kenneth Arnold himself, the man responsible for sort of almost coining the term flying saucer, um, he almost died as well. When he flew back um, home from when the Maury Island incident was completed in terms of his investigation, he took to the skies and had um, almost had like a, a crash when he, he realised afterwards what had happened was that whoever had filled the fuel tank up before he took off to fly home, they'd failed to close the fuel tank and the result was that the higher he got in the sky, the fuel actually froze in the tank and it was only due to his skill as a pilot that he managed to sort of semi-crash land the plane uh, without too much damage and you know he didn't get killed but he, he came actually very close to it so we had four deaths and almost five one being arguably one of the most famous people ever in ufology it's interesting why, why doesn't the maury island case get more attention well why doesn't it Is that what you said? Why <laughs> yeah doesn't why doesn't it well, that's actually a good question. I mean, it has actually been the subject of a very good full-length book by Ken Thomas called Maury Island UFO. The problem is that a number of researchers back then just dismissed the case as a hoax um, uh, that sort of tragically went out of control when these deaths occurred. But And so what's happened over the years is that many people have just sort of assumed, oh, well, it is a hoax, and they don't bother looking into it. But when we do dig into it and we find, you know, these military deaths, we find Fred Chrisman, the man who actually was given the wreckage by Harold Dahl, popping up in the Kennedy assassination to the point where none other than Jim Garrison actually thought that Chrisman was one of the gunmen involved in, in the shooting. Um, so you have a lot of weird threads like that. Um, there's an FBI file on the event which runs to about 40 or 50 pages, which has been declassified through the terms of the Freedom of Information Act. So we have government files, which actually contain photographs of some of the wreckage as well. So in that sense, it's, it's an assumption on the part of many that there's nothing to it. And that's why it's been overlooked, I think. But the more you look into it, you find all these very strange, weird, and stra uh, weird strands to it that you know, suggest we should look into it further. Well, there, there are, I'm guessing, many points of convergence between uh, this UFO death list and the Kennedy death list. And oh, yeah. A, a little bit later, I, w I want to ask you about Marilyn Monroe, but let me sort of continue on in, in more or less of a, a chronological uh, order here, and we just we discussed two very high-profile cases from 1947. But but let's uh, let's move ahead to 1948 and the death of a National Guard captain, uh, mm -hmm. and and whether or not actual ETs. Aliens may have been responsible for Captain Thomas Mantle's death. Yeah, well, this is a very uh, sort of famous but also infamous case because it might represent the first um, example of a pilot being killed as a result of trying to intercept a UFO. And it occurred in early January 1948 involving a pilot, Captain Thomas Mantell, who was based at a place called Goodman Army Airfield. Now... The, the official story, well, there are actually two official stories. One is that um, Mantell mistakenly chased the planet Venus, uh, got too high, became disoriented through lack of oxygen, passed out, and the plane plunged to the ground. 
The other scenario, which is broadly similar, replaces Venus um, with a, a large weather balloon or a skyhook balloon, as they were known, which is sort of a very large balloon. Um, the big question, of course, is whether or not a skilled pilot who served in the Second World War and had hundreds of hours as a pilot couldn't tell the difference between Venus, a balloon, and a UFO. And that's, of course, one of the main reasons why the case remains so valid to many UFO researchers. But the, what would the, the, the essential facts are that in, on January the 7th, 1948, um, personnel at um, Goodman Army Airfield was, was seeing this strange object on the fringes of the base, high in the sky. Nobody knew what it was. It was seemingly just hovering. Um, and so there were actually no aircrafts available at the time to try and intercept it. But as fate would have it, Mantell and three other aircraft pilots were flying back to the base. Um, unfortunately, none of them had oxygen masks, and one of them had a problem with the plane. So it ended up that three of them landed, just leaving Mantell to try and intercept this object and see what it was. So he climbed and climbed and climbed, um, eventually reaching about 25,000 feet. Now, the fact is that he should have had you know, an oxygen mask, it was dangerous to go higher and higher because you start to become affected and actually you don't realize you are becoming affected. The next thing we know was that uh, Mantel said he could see the object, it looked gigantic, it was gleaming bright, he had no idea what it was. And that was essentially the last conversation. What happened next was that the plane just plunged to the ground and, of course, Mantel was killed outright. What's interesting, though, is that the aircraft, oddly, wasn't that badly damaged. And one of the uh, military people who since spoke out about this particular incident and uh, commented on it uh, was a, uh, Captain James F. Dusler, um, who was actually the deputy commander at the base at the time. And he said that uh, the odd thing was that Mantell's body was barely damaged. In fact, he didn't have a, a scrap on the exterior of his body at all, which is something that's very rarely happens in, you know, major traumatic plane crashes. It's not like the movies where, you know, they just drag the bodies out and put them in a bag. I mean, a, a, a really bad plane crash, the bodies are just pulverized. Um, but with Mantell, there reportedly wasn't even a mark on the external parts of his body at all. Wow. Listen, Nick, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, uh, we'll move ahead a year to 1949 and talk about the the uh, mysterious death deaths of one of the most significant figures in the history of the United States government, and that would be the U.S.'s first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. Was he, in fact, killed for what he knew about the UFO ET issue? Back with more of my conversation with Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, right here. On The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Nick Redfern is with us. He is a, a terrific researcher of uh, uh, strange phenomena, but he is also one of the most prolific writers uh, I know of. And uh, he's with us with a brand-new book entitled Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. And uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the death of U.S. Secretary of Defense James Forrestal, who was uh, the United States, I believe, the first uh, uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense, 
and uh, he died under rather strange circumstances in 1949. Is there a UFO connection? Well, yeah, this is, I guess, one of the most disturbing stories of all, uh, Richard. Um, you're quite right that um, James Forrester was the very first Secretary of Defence. Um, he was given that position in 1947. And 1947, interesting year, the year in which the CIA was created, the National Security Act was passed, Roswell, Kenneth Arnold, and the first Secretary of Defence. Now, there have been long-standing stories within ufology that when uh, Forrestal was uh, was given this position, that you know he was briefed on the entire angle of UFOs and what the official world knew about it at that time, which, of course, wasn't a great deal because the subject had really just begun in the summer of 47 um, but certainly you know he may well have been briefed on recoveries of crashed ufos bodies and so forth now what's interesting is that there's absolutely no doubt that um forrester was a man who had his sort of um emotional demons so to speak he didn't handle stress well um he had mood swings um his, his marriage was quite fraught as well his wife also suffered from quite violent mood swings um and so with hindsight he may not have been the best person to entrust with you know a mountain of defense related issues every day a very stressful job at the best of times never mind being briefed on the possibility that we're being visited by creatures from another world that we don't really understand um but everything kind of came to a head in 1949 when Forrestal's psychological condition dramatically worsened to any other previous time. And he was eventually admitted to the Bethesda uh, Naval Hospital in Maryland. And he was there actually for quite a few weeks, uh, but made, re reportedly made good progress and was due to be released and was planning his future, whether in government or outside. And, you know, he seemed like a man who you know got, gone through a dark time as a lot of people do and come out the other side or on the verge of doing so now that appeared to be the case but it all came to a literally like a crashing halt on may the 22nd 1949 in the early hours when his body was either well he was either pushed or he fell or jumped um from the 13th floor of the bethesda hospital and can slammed down on the third floor canopy um of the building and of course you know falling that flo uh, that far 10 floors from the 13th to the third you're just not going to survive that and, and certainly he didn't um but as i said there have been a number of stories over the years talking about how in after becoming um the secretary of defense he was briefed on the ufo subject and he actually he did become quite paranoid thinking that people were following him right up until the time of his admission to the hospital and even his brother who actually tried to get him released from the hospital the very day after he died. He phoned the hospital up just hours before um, he killed himself and said, look, I'm taking my brother home tomorrow, like it or not. And that may have been, uh, you know, his fatal mistake because it was that very night that uh, the Forrestal died or was killed. Um, unfortunately, we'll probably never really know the full story, but... Um, one of the weird things that I talk about in the book was that um, just a few weeks before he was admitted to the hospital, he had what was sounds eerily like um, an early man in black type encounter when this sort of strange looking character turned upon his door 
and tried to get into the house um, using like a cover story as a as a cover essentially. And his his house um, made basically wouldn't let him in. But um, so that in itself was very weird. And um, as to the final moments of Forrestal's life, I mean they're shrouded in mystery that probably today will never really be resolved. I mean. For example, one of the theories was that, well, if it was suicide, that supposedly he tied the cord from his dressing gown around his neck and the other end around the radiator and climbed out of the window. But the big question was whether or not the cord that was just meant to go around his waist would allow it to be tied around his neck and around the radiator and still have enough length to allow him to climb out the window and then sort of just hang himself that way. Um, we do know that when the window, the exterior of the window was examined, there were like sort of clawed marks as if he'd been struggling. Uh, and that's given rise to speculation that he was struggling to get back in because somebody had pushed him out. So there are a lot of unanswered questions. So in that sense, at least, he's very much like the Kennedy assassination where it's a highly suspicious death, but one that with the passage of time, you know, it's always going to be wide open, I think. Well, uh, you mentioned Kennedy, and when we come back, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, JFK's assassination. Uh, his death has been linked to everything, uh, to uh, uh, you know, troop withdrawal from uh, Vietnam, uh, the Federal Reserve, and, of course, uh, the notorious document uh, in which he asked for information on UFO intelligence files uh, that was dated... A mere 10 days before he was assassinated before he was assassinated in Dealey Plaza. We'll get into JFK and UFOs with Nick Redfern when the conspiracy show continues. Don't go away. Welcome back. Nick Redfern stays with us here on the conspiracy show. And uh, uh, Nick, uh, a couple of uh, memos. Uh, one sent allegedly to the CIA director from Jack Kennedy, uh, dated November 12, 1963, in which he asks for access to UFO files. Uh, the subject of the memorandum was classification review of all UFO intelligence files affecting national security. And then a second memo uh, supposedly sent to the NASA administrator in which the president expresses a desire for cooperation with the former Soviet Union on mutual outer space activities, whatever that means. Some have speculated that those two memos may have led to his assassination. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, this is probably the most controversial death of all with um, with UFO links to it, you know, a pre US president. But as fantastic as it sounds, there are actually a lot of threads and links between the killing of Kennedy and the UFO mystery. Um, you mentioned the memos. Um, a couple of these, the sort of the unofficial ones where we don't have validation that they're real, came from a man named Timothy Cooper who claimed to receive them from elderly military sources back in the 1990s. So those documents are controversial, but there's actually a, a verifiable real document which has surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act showing that Kennedy actually did, uh, just a few days before his death, um, make advances where he wanted to approach the Soviets to essentially um, combine on sort of like a, an outer space program, uh, you know, and a sharing of data. Um, and just the day before he was killed, um, Kennedy actually unveiled six new buildings at Brooks Air Force Base in Texas, which were dedicated 
um, to furthering our understanding of space medicine. You know, how would the human body react to low gravity or no gravity and so on? And one of the people uh, Kennedy met while he was at Brooks Air Force Base um, was a uh, Major General Theodore Bedwell. And it turns out that Bedwell actually held a senior medical position at Wright Field, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, in the summer of 1947 when the bodies were brought in. So that's actually all verifiable. As I said earlier, um, uh, Fred Chrisman, involved in the Maury Island case, was actually someone that none other than Jim Garrison, who was played by Kevin Costner in, the, in Oliver Stone's JFK, um, Jim Garrison came to believe that Fred Chrisman, who had ties to the Atomic Energy Commission and a bunch of other agencies, was actually one of the gunmen who shot Kennedy. Um, another link, in, also with JFK, uh, Guy Bannister, who was a, a special agent with the FBI in the 1940s, but someone who was also suggested as being a key player in the Kennedy assassination, and he was portrayed in JFK uh, by Ed Asner. And, uh, but back in 47, um, he was actually, Guy Bannister was actually involved in a number of um, UFO incidents, investigations of UFO incidents for the FBI. And all these documents, again, have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. They're all official, officially released documents. And um, one case that Bannister was involved in was a reported crashed UFO event that actually did turn out to be a case of mistaken identity. But what was interesting is that before the mistaken identity identification was made, uh, Bannister actually received a classified behind-closed-doors meeting and briefing on the UFO subject from the military. And then, of course, he pops up in the Kennedy assassination years later. So we've got a lot of threads like that where people who were involved in the early years of ufology in the 40s suddenly cropped up in Dallas in 1963. It's amazing. And while we're on the subject of Jack Kennedy... Uh, Marilyn Monroe uh, and the infamous Red Diary supposedly containing the contents of pillow talk she had with JFK, perhaps RFK, uh, and the suggestion that uh, Kennedy had talked about uh, perhaps visiting um, some sort of a military base, seeing alien bodies, and she was going to go public with this information. Yeah, we know that um, that Marilyn Monroe had an affair at one point with President Kennedy, and although she's sort of portrayed as this, you know, sort of crazy blonde, that that was sort of her movie image. She was actually a very clever and learned and well-read uh, woman, and um, she was also a sort of prestigious keeper of journals and diaries. And she had this one which became known as the Red Book, which supposedly contained all the information that that Kennedy told her about plans to invade Cuba and, you know, how things were working out or not working out with the Russians and all sorts of different things like this, national security issues. Now, after her death in 19, August 1962, the Red Diary was, was taken to the coroner's office and a number of people have spoken out on the record who had involvement in the aftermath of her death and said they saw this diary but then said that it vanished mysteriously a couple of days after being taken into the coroner's office, and it's never surfaced since. But in 1995, a researcher named Tim Cooper came forward with a document um, purported to be a teletype, uh, essentially like um, a transcript of a, a telephone conversation, excuse me, between 
um, a journalist named Dorothy Kilgallen, who also died under mysterious circumstances after digging into the Kennedy assassination. As did uh, Mae Brussel. Exactly, but it, essentially it was like a conversation between Kilgallen and uh, a mutual friend of uh, Kilgallen and Marilyn Monroe named Howard Rothberg. And it talks about how Marilyn Monroe had supposedly confided in them about how Kennedy had told her that he'd been taken to this military base to see what was described as a crash spacecraft and bodies from space. Um, kind of like, you know, he becomes elected and then he gets the briefing, as possibly Forrestal did. Um, and so there are a lot of weird things like that that's, you know, sort of don't just relate directly to the assassination, but we have these sort of extending threads of people dying like Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen as well. We, I've talked a, a number of times on this program uh, about the strange phenomena known as the animal mutilations, mm. uh, predominantly livestock, uh, sheep, cattle, horses. Um, but what we don't hear about too often are some of the most disturbing cases of alien abduction involving human mm. mutilation. What can you tell us about human mutilation at the hands, allegedly, of aliens? This is very much a subject that kind of goes under the radar. It's sort of, I guess, underappreciated, even within the UFO field. I think a lot of people just view it as too controversial. But nevertheless, there are actually quite a few reports on file where people's where bodies have reportedly been found, human bodies with really strange mutilations like tongues and eyes removed, organs removed in the vicinity of UFO activity, and clearly where the people haven't been attacked by wild animals. And certainly one of the most graphic ones came from a man named Leonard Stringfield, who was not just a UFO researcher, but he was also um, an intelligence officer with the military as well during the Second World War. And he was given a story by someone he described as a high-ranking military officer who he trusted implicitly, who told him about an event that occurred in Cambodia in 1972, involving reportedly a team of U.S. military personnel who stumbled upon some sort of UFO, a large circular-shaped UFO, and these what were clearly alien-type creatures, sort of the classic greys, if you like, of ufology, these small creatures with large heads. And they were loading numerous human bodies and body parts into these huge bins, and essentially loading them aboard the UFO. And reportedly, there was a firefight between these extraterrestrials and the military team, which culminated in deaths on both sides, and the, the aliens reportedly retreated and their craft took to the skies. Now, it's a very controversial story, but as I said, Stringfield had a legitimate military background, an intelligence officer, and said he'd completely and fully checked out the source and was you know, as I said, completely convinced of his veracity and honesty and so on. But um, that's just one example. I mean, I talk about other ones in the book where bodies have been found in the woods on a couple of occasions, um, again, in similar fashion, with organs removed in, I won't say ritualistic fashion, because that kind of makes it sound like a, like a satanic cult or something. That was one of the theories addressed. But when you find that some of these cases have occurred in the direct vicinity of UFO events, that's sort of what's left the, the door wide open to the possibility that it may not just be cattle that have been 
systematically mutilated and even dissected. It may well be people as well. And, and, and are there other parallels to animal or cattle mutilations where the, the bodies of these humans have been entirely exsanguinated, drained of blood? Um, there are actually a couple of cases like that. I mean, for, to give you one example, I don't talk about this in, in this particular book, but I've been on many investigations to Puerto Rico in search of the so-called chupacabra, which reportedly has the ability to drain blood and primarily the animals attacked have supposedly been farm animals. But every time I've been to Puerto Rico, I've heard stories and rumours of um, human mutilations where blood, where people were found dead, drained of blood. And the story is that the authorities covered up the fact to prevent panic breaking out on Puerto Rico. Now, certainly, everybody I spoke to who knew of these stories admitted that, you know, these were sort of the you know, the more extreme and controversial end, and they were likely the, the cases that would be hidden more than anything else. And that seems to be the case. I've, I've uncovered a lot of witness reports and testimony, but I haven't come across an actual provable case of a body found dead and drained of blood in Puerto Rico. But I, I have uncovered, I would say, 12 to 15 stories, all from totally independent people who knew something about these events, which, adds, you know, does add to credibility because they're not obviously all telling the same story where they've kind of got together. You know, they're clearly talking about different events and from their own perspectives. Uh, uh, finally, um, Nick, and we just have a, about a minute and a half here, I wanted to ask you about a recent spate of, of deaths in the UFO research community. I'm talking about people like Philip Coppins, who died of a very rare form of cancer, uh, angiosarcoma, which is cancer of the heart. Uh, then we had uh, Lloyd Pye, of course, uh, the researcher on the uh, the star child skull, uh, dying of uh, B-cell carcinoma. Um, uh, Stanley Fulham, pancreatic cancer. Uh, Dr. Carla Turner, breast cancer. Sherry uh, Adiamak, breast cancer. James Allen Higgins, liver bile duct cancer. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I mean, this is one of the things I've pointed out in, in the book, is we have to be very careful, you know, what we ex we kind of put into this category versus what we don't. The main reason being, I point out, you know, that all UFO researchers at the end of the day are human. We're all mortal. You know, there's nothing special about the physical makeup of human beings versus UFO researchers. You know, we're all exactly the same. And unfortunately, you know, you, you get athletes who die at 25 on the football pitch. You get somebody who goes down with cancer at 35. Um, like Mac Tony, a good friend of mine. Mac had an existing heart condition and died at 34. And I've heard stories that, oh, well, you know, he was silenced. He, he clearly was, you know, he had a verifiable heart condition. So, you know, yes, there have been a lot of deaths in ufology, but I point out that we need to be careful that we don't just go down the path of, oh, they died and they were a UFO researcher, so it had to have been mysterious. Do you see what I mean? We, we need to rule out the mundane first, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Nick, all I can say to you is be safe. Uh, we need you and uh, appreciate your work immensely. Oh, thanks, Richard. And congratulations on the new book, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Nick Redfern, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks a lot. Tim Spreen, thank you for production. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be aboard. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that will be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.